Malachi. You can open up to the book of Malachi, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 10 through 12. Have we not all one Father? That's a rhetorical question. <laughs> Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this next section of Malachi, this dispute over right relationships, we know that you want God-honoring, God-exalting, God-glorifying relationships. Relationships in which we can dwell together in unity around Jesus. Help us learn how to do that. And Father, this morning, help us identify the obstacle that often gets in our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My question is, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we all just get along? Can't we all just get along? And who also said, can't we all just get along? My agenda is, can we all just get along? Oh, not Rodney King. You playing the race card? <laughs> I just want to say, you know, can we can we all get along? Can we can we get along? Um. So, there are defining moments in the collective consciousness of every country regarding this issue of racial equality. All right, it's different for each generation. I know a positive moment, for instance, for South Africa. For you South Africans out there, was certainly the 1995 uh, Rugby World Cup final, as featured in the recent film, uh, somewhat recent film, Invictus, right, where the green and gold of the Springboks, uh, whose captain was inspired and encouraged by the nation's first black president, Nelson Mandela, they improbably and against all odds captured the World Cup title against the New Zealand All Blacks. Now, having just wa having watched this movie, I remember speaking with uh, my friend Terry Pettit, who's South African, my friend Terry, about this uh, about a year ago. And he said it was one of those moments, you know, you kind of remember these kinds of moments where you remember where you are when this happens. And he said he remembered walking out into the streets where they were just, just packed with people. And people of every color were just dancing. And celebrating in the streets. Even Terry was dancing. He was on top of a car. I can just see Terry up there, right, doing the Roger Rabbit, you know? <laughs> just up there doing his thing. That's how he rolls. Oh, but <laughs> it's terrible. All right, so one of these moments for me personally uh, came on the brink of a major transition for my family when I was younger. Uh, I was a teenager about to move from the East Coast of the United States to the West Coast. And I was excited because I had seen Beverly Hills 90210. It was a TV show, and it was, 
You know, I thought to myself, and I've told this to many of you guys, look, there are going to be ladies out there. They're going to use me. I'm a teenager, right? What do I know? I thought it was going to be great. I didn't know Jesus either, so this is my kind of thinking. So during my spring break at the end of April in 1992, my folks and I headed out to Los Angeles to check out schools and and, uh, houses and things of this nature. But the last few days, we were basically confined into our hotel rooms because of the L.A. riots. The U.S. Army, Marines, and National Guard descended upon Los Angeles because of 53 deaths, over 2,300 injuries, and 7,000 fires were set in greater Los Angeles. They all came about because a nearly all-white jury acquitted four white police officers who brutally beat a paroled black man named Rodney King. On the third day of these riots that resulted, King, as we saw in that clip, famously asked, can't we all just get along? I thought about this question a couple weeks ago as Katie and I were, I was doing, well, really not Katie and I, it was me. I was doing the channel surfing with the remote. Came across CNN, just looked at it, said, oh, what's this? And it was one of these uh, sort of, you know, 20 years later expose interviews sort of deals with Rodney King and about this Rodney King, the trial and the beating and all of this. And two interviews in this expose really stood out. One was with Rodney King himself. And what stood out was the fact that he was still struggling with alcohol, which was the reason why he initially fled from the police in the first place. And he still finds himself seeking out the bottle. The second interview that stuck out was with a lawyer, a lawyer who defended one of the cops in this case. He said this, if officers do what they're trained to do under the law, how can you find them guilty of a crime? And it became clear to me as I listened to this, why neither of these parties got along then and why they don't get along now. The reason is a secret idol. For Rodney King, he ran from the police that night because of a secret idol. Alcohol. For this lawyer, sort of on the other side, it was the California law and this police handbook that was greater than the law of love, right? Greater than God's law of caring for people, people who were defenseless and who had given themselves up. In other words, the conflict arose neither because of what happened in a courtroom nor because of what happened at a police car, but rather the origin of the conflict for each side came about because of what they worshipped behind the scenes. When no one was looking, it was what they worshipped that led to this conflict. The sermon this morning, the message this morning in a nutshell is this. Conflict arises less from what we do together, but from what we worship while apart. Less from what we do when you and I are together, and more from what we worship when we're apart. That's the major insight that Malachi gives us in just these three verses, answering the question, why can't we just all get along? And this is so important, so crucial, because when we often work out conflict or really manage conflict, we do so in terms of what? Personality styles. Right? Bargaining. Compromise. Compromise to the point where no one is ever really satisfied, right? 
we often walk away bitter. In other words, genuine peace is rarely achieved. Rather, it's postponed. We put a little dirt over it and walk away. All the while, there lurks something deeper. Something unseen that each person usually brings to the conflict. So we're going to look this morning at why should we all get along? Why don't we all get along? And finally, how do we destroy what divides us? So first, how, or sorry, why should we get along? Why should we get along in the first place? It's something Malachi addresses in the first verse here of our passage. First, one of the things he says is, has not one God created us? All right, so pretty obvious here. We all come from the same place. But it's not just any place. Right? It's all from the same dad. The same father. And so, the second reason Malachi gives us, have we not all one father? He says in verse 10. God has entered into this covenant with his people. He agrees to adopt them. And protect them as a father. And in turn, he asks that they love him as sons and daughters. And that they love one another as now, in effect, brothers and sisters. Because they're all part of one family. Similarly, through Christ, you and I are united because we are one family. Those of us who've trusted Christ. And so here, a principal obligation of the Mosaic Covenant, and that's the covenant Malachi has in mind here. The principal obligation is to love one's neighbor as himself. We think of Jesus saying this, but actually God said it long before this, through Moses in Leviticus 19, verse 18. And this obligation was being broken. And so Malachi asks, and notice he includes himself in this, really for the first time, why then are we faithless? It's not the people asking this, it's Malachi Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant with our fathers? All right, so we are chosen, created to be part of this community. And this community is a family with this perfect father. So we're in a good place. God's people here in the time of Malachi, they're in a good place. So why can't they all get along? The short answer, idolatry. Last week we talked about idolatry in terms of presenting the gospel. And that when you talk with people about the good news of Jesus, you also have to talk about sometimes their idols. This week we're going to talk about idolatry in terms of relational conflict. So the short answer is idolatry, but let's dig deeper. Let's dig deeper here. First of all, we need to talk briefly about what is idolatry. Idolatry is replacing the God of the universe, the God is revealed in Scripture, with someone or something other than Him. To make that thing number one. Right? Which sort of defeats the purpose of God. The idea of God, Lord, King of kings. It all connotates number one, right, in our lives. That's the way it's supposed to be. Which is why he calls himself those things. In the beginning, human beings were made to, one, worship and serve God. And then, two, to rule over all created things in God's name. Instead... We failed to trust in God's goodness and man fell into sin, the practical outworking of which is idolatry. 
Romans 1, Paul says in Romans 1, 23, and also in 25, he says, Humans exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and the birds and animals and reptiles. He goes on to say, They exchange the truth of God for a lie, and worship and serve created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Then he seals it with an Amen. Now see, what happened is we reversed the intended order of things. Humans now worship and serve created things, and then created things come along to rule over them. You see that? It's been reversed. It still doesn't answer the question, why do we replace God, the God of the universe, with an idol? In other words, something that's not God. Simple answer is, we believe idols will bring two important things to our lives. They'll bring salvation and satisfaction, but without rule. In other words, in the heat of the moment, when things are hard, when things are difficult, uh, when we're bored, when we're frustrated, we look to things to save us, to deliver us out of those situations. And even if we get temporary success with them, we believe they will go on to satisfy us. But they don't. And we think they won't rule over us, right? We think we'll still have control over our own lives because it's not God. But they will. We'll get to that more in a moment. How does idolatry work? How does it work? Let's look at the case of those to whom Malachi is speaking. He says this in verse 11. Judah has married the daughter of a foreign god. It's a weird statement, right? Judah, did they literally all go out and get hitched to foreign gods, like in their version of Vegas? No, that's not what happened. But what we know is this. There are scriptures like Exodus 34, 15 through 16, or Deuteronomy 7, 3, which explicitly forbid Jews from marrying non-Jews. So it's an interesting way to put it here. Usually, God will say something like, you are guilty of intermarriage, or you have been marrying pagans of surrounding nations, and you shouldn't. But by putting it this way, by saying marrying the daughter of a foreign god, Malachi is exposing the root of why intermarriage is a problem for these folks. It's not that God is a xenophobe, or that he is anti-international marriages, but because relationships change people. We're often so naive, right, to say, no relationship's going to change me. But the real question is, which relationship will influence us the most? That's the real question. And it's going to happen. And here it's as Malachi is pointing out, you're not just marrying, you're not just yoking yourself or attaching yourself to a person, but to a worshiper. Because everyone worships something. No one wants to admit that. And when we consider that yoking, attaching ourselves, always involves relationships of some kind, that influence of what is worship becomes stronger. What do I mean by that? What do I mean it becomes stronger? If I worship sports, cooking, uh, shopping, being social, all good things, but when I make them number one in my life, they become idols, part of that worship is finding others who share a common interest, right? That's why we have things like message boards. Like, what is that all about? And people will spend time and time on them. And, and that's why we have groups on Facebook where people will join commonly as one people to love the office, right? Or something like that. Or, or, 
or people who have uh, young babies, play groups, right? And they descend upon Kamana Bay. <laughs> They're great, by the way. I want to diss them. I mean, I, recently, I uh, was walking through Kamana Bay. <laughs> And this lovely playgroup was coming through. I mean, literally 20 women with children in this area. And I was just trying to walk to the coffee shop. And I mean, it's, I, I just, it makes you sympathize for people with young children. Like one woman was literally, something bad happened. And there was this like decorative fountain there. And she was, had to take off her children's clothes. And was like washing them in the decorative fountain. I'm like, oh my gosh. Just get to the coffee shop. It's so hard. We find fellow worshipers is what we really do. And we yoke ourselves to them. And in doing so, we strengthen or solidify the idols in our life. So, idolatry works both ways. Yoking ourselves to a person or attaching ourselves to a person requires attaching yourself to what they value and worship. Now, this can happen in positive ways. So, for instance, in my marriage with Katie... She has influenced me greatly for good in areas like serving and giving. She's phenomenal at that. It's not that the other person changes us, but what they worship changes us. Does that make sense? We always say, like, when you go into marriage, you can't expect someone to change you. That's true. It's usually what they worship that changes you. So, yoking yourself to a person requires yoking yourself to what they value or that they worship. But yoking yourself to an idol almost always entails you yoking yourself to fellow worshipers. And that strengthens the worship. Do you see the vicious cycle going on here? You know, you have an idol, you find people who like the idol. That strengthens your idol worship. Or you're in a relationship with someone who worships something other than God. That starts to influence and strengthen what you worship other than God. And that's what was happening to God's people here in Malachi. What does idolatry do? Two things. Causes violence. As Tim Keller pointed out in the sermon we watched last week. Causes violence. If someone threatens your idol, what happens? First, you become defensive. Right? And then far worse, you become violent. Maybe you don't actually hit people, but it goes up a notch. So we just began the season of Lent, right, which commemorates uh, Christ's 40 days of fasting and being tested in the desert. And one of the traditions is to sort of give up something. As Christ denied himself in fasting for us and ultimately defeating Satan, we sort of commemorate this by sometimes denying ourselves for 40 days as a discipline or something. Okay? So if a friend were to suggest to you, this past week or this next week, to give up something for 40 days, which is truly an idol in your life, most likely you would first find reasons why not to give up that thing. Right? Oh, well, come on, there's freedom in Christ, and you know, I, you don't really know me. Right? We say things like this. Now, if our friend presses us, what's going to happen? It's going to get violent. Don't you attack my idol. Don't you threaten my worship. You know what I'm talking about. Idols get violent. And they also change us. There's this great little insight from the psalmist in Psalm 115, 115 regarding idolatry. Read this with me if you would. Psalm 115, we're going to read verses 4 through 8. Pay attention to verse 8. 
Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, they do not speak. Eyes, they do not see. They have ears, they do not hear. Noses, they don't smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is a profound insight from the psalmist. What he's saying is, when we give ourselves to idols, we start becoming like them. We call them things like passions, hobbies, something we like, stuff we dig. When we give ourselves to them, we think, hey man, I'm just being me. But the reality is, we are becoming what we worship. Isn't that scary? We become less like ourselves and less and less in God's image the longer we trust in an idol to save us and to satisfy us. Idols change us. Finally, who do they hurt? Thinking about idols, who do idols hurt? You know, we think what we do is our business and our business alone. And what we do Behind closed doors is our business. And we ultimately can fall back on that rationale. Hey, at least no one else is getting hurt. But that's wrong. It's wrong. Paul says, so if you have trusted Christ, he says this to you in 1 Corinthians 12, 26-27. If one member of the body of Christ suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. What does that mean? If you suffer under the yoke of idolatry, I suffer too. In other words, I have a lot at stake with what you worship behind the scenes. And you have a lot at stake at what I worship behind the scenes. Do you see that? Now I can't explain exactly how this works. But God's word says it's true. And I've seen it happen. When people have these private idols and, and, and the church starts to build up that way, man, it influences us. Satan uses that. But more specifically, it affects our relationships. So behind nearly every conflict, nearly every confrontation, every argument, scrap, scuffle, brouhaha, and Donnybrook, there is a silent partner. Our boys uh, were off school this past week. And Katie, my wife Katie, didn't have to attend uh, UCCI on Friday. She usually attends classes. She's getting her teaching certification there. Friday, uh, thus, is also my day off. And so, on the rare occasion this year, we have a day off together. But the kids are home. We try to give each other a break. One takes the morning, one takes the afternoon. And we give each other one or the other so that we can have time to, you know, rest or, you know, reflect, uh, read, pray. I thought she'd want the morning. All right, so we get into this discussion. I thought she'd want the morning, but Katie wanted the afternoon so she could continue with her schoolwork during the evening. She wanted to persevere in that. But I also wanted the afternoon. Uh, so we had this discussion, right, uh, a brouhaha, if you will. That, uh, you know, got heated because we gave, you know, we had different reasons. We're going back and forth. I'm trying to convince her why she should want, you know, the, the, uh, the morning slot. And, uh, yeah, I know. 
Yeah. So uh, what, what she didn't know, though, what she didn't know is I brought my silent partner into the conversation. Because an important basketball game was taking place at noon. And that was the real reason I wanted the afternoon. So later that night, I looked, literally looked, read this passage and it hit me. Yeah, that was an idol. And it caused this conflict. Now, thankfully, I had a plan B, which was I have trained my children so that they're hitting the peak of their love for basketball. And so when I had them in the afternoon, it was just the right time. Like, yes, join me for watching basketball. Indulge in my idol. Right? So it just made it worse, actually. Oh, I brainwashed them. That's terrible. All right, so I haven't really... That's going to go over the radio. That's bad news. I'm not brainwashed by children. I've loved them. They happen to love basketball. But you see what I'm talking about here. Idols create all these ulterior motives. All these ulterior motives that we bring in to even God-glorifying conversations. When we're working towards a God-glorifying solution, we bring in, even then, these silent partners that the other person doesn't know about. Maybe you haven't experienced these kinds of conflicts before. Aren't you thankful then? Man, I'm idol free and loving it. Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. Uh, You've likely rarely had these conflicts because your idol is being accepted, being liked, being appreciated by others. And so you want to avoid these sorts of conversations, these sorts of confrontations at all costs. You want to avoid making the other person feel uncomfortable around you. Or maybe it's because your idol's independence. You don't let yourself get close to other people. And so you're free from any obligation upon yourself. By the way, I'm going to publish tonight on my blog a list of potential idols. A great list from Tim Keller's uh, Gospel and Life book. He's great on this subject. Many of you have been studying this book in your community groups. Uh, I would encourage you to check it out. Identify your idol. Expose it so that you can destroy it. Which leads us to our last point. How do we destroy what divides us? Alright, so we've acknowledged the fact. What are idols? How do they work? What do they do to us? And who do they hurt? And we know they are dangerous. They are violent. They change us. And they don't just hurt us. They hurt those around us. How do we destroy them then? So that we can live together in unity. Well, Two strategies. One's kind of a defensive strategy and one's more of an offensive strategy. One's a defensive strategy. How do you keep the enemy outside the gate more offensive? What do you do when the idol is in your life and has taken the throne? So first, a defensive strategy. Decide daily what's most worthy of your love. Decide daily what is most worthy of your love. You have a choice in this. You have a choice in this. Where do I get this point? I get it from this passage. If you look in verse 11, Malachi says, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, which he loves. Now for some reasons, and I I believe some good reasons, the uh, Hebrew word here, Kadesh, is translated here as sanctuary. Sanctuary is literally this Hebrew word, Kadesh. But But it literally means, all right, Kadesh literally means holiness, Or, even more literally, separateness. So I would argue, and I don't have time to get into it right now. You can, if you want to, you know, email me later about exegesis, we can talk about it. But I would argue that this is the right translation. That Yahweh loves His holiness, His separateness. And that is what's been profaned. That's what's been tarnished. His holiness, His 
otherness, if you will. Why does this matter? Why does this matter for us? Well, because what will cause an idolater's love for God to ultimately overshadow his love for an idol is the object of his love. That object has to be far greater and we have to see it as far superior to the other object, our idol. I uh, have in my hands a uh, Hallmark card that I bought yesterday. Uh, I'm going to read to you. Uh, It was entitled, as I looked at the different labels, Destiny. Should we kill the lights for this? Maybe a little mood music? We didn't plan that. All right. Uh, Here we go. Uh, Because of you, I believe in destiny. Otherwise, however, in this crazy, busy, jumbled up world, did we ever manage to get together? There I was, going along, doing my everyday stuff, meeting people, hanging out, with no sparks flying anywhere. Then you came into the picture, and kapow! Everything changed in a moment. The stars were aligned, and fate brought us together. But the best part? All the time since then, the delicious process of discovery, of finding new things about you to love. Oh yes, destiny knows what it's doing. <laughs> yes. I'll be reading more of these later. What, what, what makes this card, what makes this card different from this love letter? Besides the authors, right? That's, that's pretty clear. Well, it's the object. The object of the love. Now you might say, wait a minute. Both objects are people, right? The, the object of this card is an earthly love. It's not perfect, but it's grand and a little cheesy. But the other, this, the Bible, is written to a separate kind of love. In other words, Yahweh, the I Am, loves what is holy, what is separate. So He not only just loves us as we are, He makes us more like Him because He loves what is holy. He loves His holiness, His separateness. And why not? It's awesome. And so when we come to trust Christ, we get Christ's righteousness. We get Christ's holiness. And then He makes us more like Him. Do you see that? The object of His love is holiness. What's the object of our love? Paul says this. Listen closely. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Do you get that? Love isn't just... Oh, here's a Hallmark card and some chocolates. No. Love has a holiness, otherness component. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. You see this throughout the New Testament where there are places. And it's hard to explain this unless you experience it. There is something so freeing, so, so right about living a righteous and holy life. If you've never been in those moments, and granted, for me, they're still very rare, few and far between. But you start to love what is God's? And it is freeing. You don't think it'll be. You think it's going to be restricting. But it's not. We were designed to love what is holy because God loves what is holy. So it's not that I love my wife less, as Keller said last week. Or it's not that I necessarily love basketball less. But that I'm to love him who is utterly different, who is utterly separate more. To the extent that the only valid earthly comparison Jesus could make was this. This is radical what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, 
This is Jesus talking. And his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What does he mean when he says that? He means the only way to describe it in earthly terms in terms of how much we're supposed to love God's holiness, and that's his design for our life, anything else can only be described as hate. So the goal is to say, in comparison to God who is my life, I can only describe potential idols in terms of hate. And in cases of some idols that, that trap us, that enslave us, we are certainly called to hate. Pornography, lust. How do we do this? We remind ourselves what is most worthy of our love. We've got to do this. I had to do this this week. We do this with our minds. That song we sang earlier, I'm digging these children's songs, by the way. I'm starting to think they're better than these adult worship songs. Philippians 4.8. Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We do this also in community. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says this. Talk about these commands when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. Moses is giving these commandments. It's a big moment. He's starting to give them. He's saying, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. What does that mean? It means talk about them wherever, in casual life, when you're at a coffee shop, when you meet someone on the streets. Last week I ran into uh, Gordon McRae at a basketball game. Our kids play in the same basketball league. And after a brief hello, Gordon got right into talking about being challenged as he's been reading through Malachi, chapters 1 and 2, the first two chapters of Malachi. He'd been meditating on it, considering it. So we got into sharing aspects of God's Word in Malachi and how it was challenging to both of us. And he was unable to go to the, the servant evangelism cookout that night, but he, he remarked on our role as priests and said how God was encouraging him to consider how he might be a servant evangelist in his own life. After just a brief hello, there should be times, friends, socially, in which I'm stumped as to what to say. Do you know what I mean? When small talk no longer suffices, because the separateness of God, of His truth, of His love, must be spoken of. Do we ever have those times? That's a way we can defend ourselves against idolatry and community. Speak about the separateness of God's truth. Second strategy. This will be brief. Conquer idols through the cross. When an idol has come in and taken the throne in your life, we can conquer through the cross. I'm just going to read this to you. It's not up on the screen. It's from Romans 8. Paul says, you know, what shall we say to all these things about salvation? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all through the cross, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He goes on to say, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice the last part. Nothing can separate us, including created things. What did we see earlier in Romans 1? We came to worship created things. Now, nothing will separate us, not even created things, from God. What changed? The cross. The cross of Christ. Idols can be put to death through the cross. 
how when we go to the cross, we remember, we drink in, we recall that there is a God who died that we might live. Whereas idols, idols, friends, idols seek to live as gods so that we might die. And our silent partners are exposed for what they are and the comparison becomes overwhelming. If you sit before the cross, and you know what? Sometimes you've got to force yourself because those idols are strong. If you sit before the cross, the power of its separate, otherworldly love will overwhelm our silent partners and will conquer these idols so that you and I can live together in unity. Let's pray. Lord, a lot to take in this morning. Idols affect our lives. And when they don't affect our lives, they're always around the corner, ready to do so. Ready to become number one. Father, we ask that you would help us. Help us. Every day consider what is most worthy of our love. We think, you know, people certainly worthy of our love. Maybe even some passions worthy of our love. But not as worthy as you. And your truth, which is totally otherworldly, separate. Help us love what you love. And remember this idol. This idol is just trying to kill me. Will cause me to come, become violent and will change me. And ironically, Lord, it's because we treasure you and we put you first that we're able then to love people freely. And we're able to dwell together in unity. When we idolize people, they disappoint us. And ultimately, we get angry at them. When we idolize other things, we get angry when people try to take that away from us. Lord, help us implement these strategies. Consider what's most worthy of our love every day of our lives. And go to the cross to kill that idol. Jesus, because you died that we might live. In your name we pray. Amen.